Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Polygon Alpha podcast, where the Polygon community gathers insights from today's leaders in decentralized finance, Web3, and crypto. I'm your host, Justin Havens, aka Crypto Texan. Let's get started. On today's episode of Polygon Alpha, we are joined by Ashar Shahid and Dave Connor from API3. Hey, guys. How are y'all doing today? Good, good. How are you, Justin? How's Polygon treating you? Uh, Polygon's Polygon's treating me very well, Ashar. Thanks for asking. Dave, how about yourself? Yeah, I'm, I'm good. Thanks, Justin. Thanks for having us on. Um, we're looking forward to this. Yeah, we're excited as well. So we just like to start these off with just a little bit of background. Uh, Dave, we can start with you. If you could just give us a little bit of background on yourself uh, and how you came to be into crypto and API3. And then Ashar, we'll move on to you afterwards. Okay, so I've been kind of involved, when I say involved in crypto, I've been in crypto since about 2013. Um, what originally got me in was Dogecoin before it became cool. Um, I didn't really buy a huge amount of it, but it was enough to get me interested in the technology. And then kind of following how kind of Dogecoin and Bitcoin at the time introduced something called colored coins, which was almost like a proto token before full smart contract functionality was available. Watching that appear and then kind of be deprecated made me interested about if blockchain could do things more than just moving units of um, accounts around. And then seeing Ethereum appear made me realize that like, actually you can start to build things on the blockchain, but the final missing piece of the puzzle was the ability to interface with the real world. So it was around 2017, 2018 that I decided to get more involved in blockchain and start working in the space. So with a few other people that we'd met through various different online communities, we launched a data marketplace that we built using Chainlink Oracles. And some of the lessons that we learned using that and developing this marketplace are what led to us um, realizing the need for a different type of Oracle and creating API 3. That's the kind of TLDR of it anyway. Yeah, thanks, Dave. Thanks for that background. Ashar, what about yourself? Dave looks like an OG. Uh, he's been in for from 2013, whereas I started around 2017, you remember the first bull run, where Bitcoin went to 20K. I joined around like the beginning of the bull run. I started trading crypto. And then uh, like the whole bear market happened and I sort of uh, kept up with the scene, but wasn't really that invested until I saw Uniswap V2 launch. And when I saw what Uniswap V2 could do on chain, I became bullish on like crypto development as a whole. Uh, before this, I was working as a developer for a Web2 company. But uh, as soon as I saw like the possibilities that uh, DeFi enabled in the Web3 space, uh, I started learning Solidity and also uh, writing smart contracts of my own. Uh, the first thing that I realized was that for DeFi to scale, uh, beyond just on-chain stuff, you need off-chain data as well. And then I started looking into what Oracle projects there are. <laughs> Unfortunately, there weren't many, just one. So uh, I felt like uh, there needs to be more Oracle solutions, and that's how I stumbled upon API 3 and helped them build uh, the Oracle space. Yeah, Oracles definitely provide a huge need within the DeFi space specifically, which is what my, what I focus on at the Polygon team. But uh, Dave, I think you might be a good person to ask this question to since you brought up 
colored coins. And if you're bringing up colored coins and you know what you're talking about, that means you're an OG. So I would like to know just kind of, you, I think the Oracle problem was the issue that everyone was trying to solve for a while. Do you think you could go back and kind of tell us the beginnings of the Oracle problem and what actually is the Oracle problem trying to solve? Thanks, Justin. Yeah, so the Oracle problem um, is about not trusting a single third party to put data on chain. Smart contracts can't natively see data that isn't contained on the blockchain itself. So in order for a smart contract to use external data, it needs to be brought on chain. And the entity that does that is called an Oracle. So the problem with oracles, as it were, is that if you're a big off-chain data provider and somebody wants to use your data on-chain, you're entirely reliant on whoever operates the oracle to relay that data on-chain correctly. So you could have the best data source in the world, but if the oracle decides to tell your smart contract that Bitcoin is $1, all of your people on your protocol are probably going to be liquidated. And the data source can't necessarily do much about that. So... One of the problems that we're addressing with API 3 is the Oracle problem, but we've approached it with the point of view that the Oracle problem is misposed. The Oracle problem historically is that you don't want to trust a single third party to put data on chain. And we think actually that by assuming you have to use a third party, the problem is, is poorly phrased. Um, and historically, this is because Oracle software is pretty difficult to operate. So Coinbase used two full-time blockchain developers to maintain their own internal Oracle that people can use. And if you're a big data provider, maybe that's okay for you to do. But if you're, well, the majority of crypto price data providers don't necessarily want to hire two full-time blockchain developers. So you end up with these specialized companies that run Oracles, call API data, and put it on chain. And I think the first of those really was Oracleize, or the first that I'm aware of anyway. And they were kind of this single Oracle provider would put data on chain, charge per call. And that's one of the, I think it's one of the examples Chainlink used fairly early on as being a, like a centralized Oracle that's subject to the Oracle problem. So with API 3, we realized that actually the core problem isn't not trusting a single third party. The core problem is using third parties at all. So we've created an Oracle that data providers are able to operate themselves so that data can be relayed directly to chain without this third-party layer that can misreport data. Right. So I guess that's the difference between a first-party Oracle versus a third-party Oracle. And that's what API 3 provides is a first-party Oracle, if I understand correctly. And I would like to know like the differences between the two. And I guess most people are more familiar with with Chainlink, obviously, because that seems to be the most popular Oracle service provider at this time. And is that a third-party Oracle, or how would you describe them in, compared to API 3? I would describe Chainlink as being a third-party Oracle by design. There are some more advanced data providers that are able to operate Chainlink nodes as a first-party Oracle. So calling them just a third-party Oracle would be doing them a disservice. But it's not designed primarily for that use case. So... Our Oracle is designed to be easily operated by any data provider without them necessarily even needing to handle cryptocurrency or any tokens or anything. So it's, it's designed from the ground up for that purpose. Um, whereas Chainlink isn't. You have to top up gas wallets. You have to use link tokens to call it. So for, for a lot of big Web2 companies in regulated spaces, that might be a significant roadblock to preventing them running it in a first-party use case. Okay. And then 
you know, typically with oracles, well, just with blockchain in general, I guess, like there's always these incentive mechanisms to make sure everyone, all the players are operating truthfully, right? So can you shed a little light on what are some of those economic incentives that I just make sure that everyone using the API 3's data feed and providing that data is acting truthfully and appropriately? So this is a pretty good question. And stop me if my answer is getting too involved. Um, so API 3 has an approach to economic incentives designed around incentivizing the DAO, because API 3 itself is a DAO. Um, and with DAOs, you want to make sure that the incentives are structured to create the outcome that you want. So the TLDR of it is that API 3 DAO's members guarantee that the data provided by API 3 when we launch our data feeds will be within a certain percentage. And there's a risk coverage protocol that's used to back that up. And the reason why this makes a lot of sense, um, for us anyway, is that we've designed the incentives to make sure that API 3 is governed for the long run, is governed around not providing bad data and is governed in a way that the people choosing how the data goes on chain and what data sources are used are the ones who back up their choices with their stake. So in order to participate in governing API 3, you stake your API 3 tokens into a staking pool. This staking pool is used to collateralize the risk coverage service. So while you're staking, if there's an event where data that's incorrect or too high a deviation or not the real value is pushed on chain and people lose money, the affected protocols can claim through the risk coverage service and they can have up to an agreed maximum paid back and that comes directly from the staking pool. So if API 3 governs feeds badly, it's not the protocol users who lose out as a result. And to kind of counterbalance this, people who stake into API3's pool, they get governance rights. So you govern how the feeds are created and how the products are created, but you also get paid a percentage um, reward, in effect, for staking, and that vests for a year. So that means that if you're governing, you're incentivized to govern the protocol in a way that will retain value and build on it over a year, well, over the long term, but also not create mistakes and create bad products in the short term. So I guess the way you guarantee that the, the product is good is by putting the people who build it on the hook. I think one thing you missed, Dave, is that we also pay part of the revenue of each DAP subscribing to a data feed to the API providers themselves. So they have an incentive to provide the right data. Yeah, so that's true. Um, the other side of that is that um, if you think about other Oracle projects, incentive models, so ones that are designed around third-party node operators staking, and the minorities or the node operators furthest away from the median getting slashed, which is meant to incentivize the correct data being provided, if you successfully gain a 51% share of the third-party nodes, and bear in mind, Data operators gen or data providers generally are big companies. It, it's quite hard to gain control over them. A lot have been in the real world for longer than Bitcoin has been around. Um, compared to node operators that are generally quite small businesses, some won't even have identified team members on their website. So if you get 51% of node operators, you can push bad data to chain 
And in most Oracle operators staking models, you wouldn't be penalized because you're the majority. So how do you get around that kind of problem where the majority can still be wrong? Um, is you have this kind of uh, like after the time risk coverage protocol. So that kind of attack would punish API 3 for not doing successful due diligence on the API providers that are chosen to make up a feed. So it's, kind of, it's a different incentive model, I think, to the majority of Oracle providers, and one that means people don't lose money um, as a result. Yeah, sure. Do you have anything else to add to that? I think, uh, I think Dave covered it pretty well. I think uh, it's if the, the key thing to point here is that if everyone acts in, a, like in the right way, uh, it's a plus model for everyone, where that you have cheaper feeds, you have um, more transparent feeds, and this is also more, I would say, just because of the transparency, it's more secure because the aggregation and everything happens on chain. So you know where the data is coming from and you know uh, who's pushing the data. And because of that, uh, you as a DAP uh, should, in theory, feel more secure about using API 3, uh, especially because you now, now also have risk coverage, right? So uh, I see this model as being like the future of Oracles, where uh, you have transparency over what the, where the data comes from, rather than now where like you don't really know where the data comes from. Yeah, and I, I think this is a pretty important point, so I'll just kind of elaborate very slightly on it. So one of the other differences that's implied in the difference between first party and third party, but maybe not completely apparent, is that the data source is putting it on chain directly. So, And blockchain is a, an immutable record that will exist probably for forever. So if you're a big real-world data provider putting data on chain, if you try to attack a data feed, that's visible and auditable, and you're directly accountable for that. If there's a third-party node layer in the meantime, if you try and attack the feed, it probably would be assumed that it's the third parties, or you certainly would have a, a bigger degree of deniability, and it would be more obfuscated in the event of a third-party um, Oracle protocol. So you tie a data provider's real-world accountability much better into a data feed, and you can also tell the number of sources. So if you have a data feed with 21 third-party oracles on, how many sources are being used? It, it doesn't really give you any information about that because they could all be using the same API. Whereas if you have five, six, seven, ten, however many different first-party sources, you know that you're using different individual data sources and you know exactly who these data sources are and their, like, their node addresses will be linkable to different websites for the companies so you can tell exactly how feeds are constructed. And also the governance of this, like what data sources are used, is all decentralized as well through the DAO. Whereas with existing Oracle projects, you have a, a centralized company choosing which third-party nodes are used. So we tried to make everything as decentralized and open as possible for the whole thing. And we think that that gives people the ability and a better ability to look at a data feed, inherently assess how, like, how risky it is, how reliable it's likely to be, and then we also, as a DAO, are doing that, and we're willing to guarantee that by putting our own money on the line. Effectively. Okay, and can you go into a little bit more detail about the role of the DAO and what exactly do the DAO or the, I guess, API3 token holders have governance power over? What are they voting on within the DAO? 
So currently, APF3's token holders are voting. So our DAO is an Aragon fork, um, which uses the percentage of tokens that you have in the staking pool as your percentage of governance rights. And currently, the main role and the main voting activities are around the DAO appointing teams to serve for various periods to build out parts of the protocol. So there's, for example, a Shars on the core technical team, which is building the main smart contracts for the data feeds, which had also built out the main smart contracts for the main DAO itself. I'm on the business development sub-team, so we have various different um, roles and responsibilities within business development. Um, there's various different sub-teams can also apply to deliver a specific product. So there's a sub-team that's built out that's exploring kind of MEV tactics around um, oracles at the moment. And there are other sub-teams with very specific responsibilities. So in terms of how this, this looks, um, it's almost like the DAO giving grants to teams to fulfill specific objectives. If they fulfill that objective and deliver the deliverables, they'll then normally, if they're looking to continue being given grants by API 3, they would then come up with deliverables for the next proposal. And if they delivered the previous ones successfully, then that tends to look good with them. Whereas if people and teams are not delivering, then it's likely that they probably wouldn't have successive proposals passed. And the overall aim is to try to tie these along, well, tie these kind of milestones together with what we expect API 3 to be, and using the kind of the white paper as a guideline for what votes are, or for what votes, or what people are voting for to try to get towards which is kind of fully decentralized DAO-governed data feeds with risk coverage. Yeah, and DAOs do tend to be very horizontal, and it can be very slow to get things done. Uh, I worked with a DAO for a while, or for a DAO, however you want to say that, the Index Co-op. Uh, I was with the Index Coop for a while, yeah. And so, I don't know, like what, you know, operating a protocol like this, an Oracle, it, it does... API 3 does seem to be very DAO focused and horizontal by design in that regards. Like what kind of struggles have you seen comparative to operating in a more centralized fashion for protocol development? I would say it can take longer to make decisions because there's no one person at the top saying you have to do this. There, you need to have a kind of consensus between different sub teams in order to work out how to move forward with something. Um, we're not the kind of DAO that has a snapshot vote over everything. So our votes are all on chain and designed to move tokens for grants for teams to deliver certain things. So a lot of the decisions are made by teams that the DAO has voted as taking on a certain duty or teams that have come in to deliver a product. The teams then have free reign within their proposal over how they plan on delivering it. And obviously, if the DAO doesn't like that proposal, it will be rejected. They'll reword it come back and then the proposal explaining how things should be done that passes is what we expect them to do. Ashar, do you have any comments as the core protocol developer? Yeah, just to add to that, it's not that like within the teams, there's definitely hierarchy, like who handles what, who's in charge of doing what. There's usually a team lead who partakes in like designing the structure and then delegating tasks to different individuals. So it isn't as horizontal as, say, one would think. Uh, it's usually more like the different teams are horizontal, and within the teams, there's like a hierarchical structure, I would say. 
Yeah, I was hoping to see, you know, in the bull market, maybe a lot more innovation related to Dow structuring. And I don't really think I've seen a whole lot of that. But I do like the concept of pods or sub teams or sub DAOs. And it sounds like that's kind of the structure that y'all have been implementing or have implemented. Would you say that's fair? Not in code, but in like, like if you were to think of a sub DAO, it's it's its own governance on chain uh, that does stuff. But it's not in code. We do it internally, but uh, we we do think that for every chain that we launch uh, API three on, at some point there is going to be a sub DAO for them, so that they do their uh, governance for that chain uh, there, and like API three as a whole is just like a main governing body for the protocol itself. Oh, that makes sense. Chain-specific DAOs. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, but let's talk a little bit more about, I guess, the tech stack related to API 3. I know you have something called an air node. Uh, can you describe for our listeners what exactly is an air node and how is that involved in API 3's protocol? So the air node is basically a very lightweight node that uh, pushes data on-chain and also listens for requests on-chain. Um, it's a bit, if anyone here is familiar with AWS or GCP, it's a serverless function that's hosted uh, on the cloud. And uh, it could be run by basically anyone with uh, an AWS account or a GCP account. And once they run it, they can just let it run uh, basically perpetually. And it would listen for requests for your API and then fulfill those requests. So... Having set up this infrastructure that makes it so seamless for the data providers to run such a such a node makes it possible that these data providers or API providers, they don't need to deal with the technicalities of running a blockchain Oracle node. Uh, all they have to do is run the one command uh, and they're, they're done. That's it. Uh, everything else, uh, like the... The dealing with the blockchain tokens or things like that, they don't have to worry any about any of that. So this is what like AirNode enables. Uh, you as a user uh, don't need to. Uh, suppose you're you're using a DApp that uses AirNode as a blockchain oracle. You as a user uh, don't need to like communicate with the blockchain pro uh, node operator ever. All you have to do is uh, just top up the gas wallets on your own and you can make your requests. So uh, it's a pretty like great, as, as a, as a, even as a third party node, it would function pretty well. But uh, for a first party node, it's like the ideal solution. Yeah. And also including that tech stack, you know, I think it's helpful also to just kind of lay this framework of like how API 3's data feeds are constructed from a response request to the beacons and then the beacon sets as well. Ashari, if you can answer that as well, that'd be helpful. Right. Uh, so the request response protocol is basically like as the name suggests, you make a request on chain and then it calls uh, it, the air node picks up that request. It calls the API, gets back the response. Uh, and then the air node delivers that transaction on-chain with the data of that API. So it's a simple uh, request and response flow. Um, as far as beacons go, uh, they are a continuous feed of data that is streamed on-chain. 
Um, and this is like one particular type of data. So this would be relevant in price feeds where you just want the price of say ETHUSD. Uh, the beacon of ETHUSD would exist on chain and the air node would be streaming down the price every, uh, so like every interval or at a threshold. So say you can define the threshold, say 1%. So if the price of ETH goes down by 1%, the air node would then stream the data to the blockchain. Um, so that's what a beacon is. The thing with beacon is it's only single source. So you can only make a beacon out of something uh, from, from one air node. Uh, so that, that air node is the single source. A beacon set is just a combination of beacons uh, that you aggregate on-chain uh, to get the final value. So now instead of one air node, you're getting the data from like, let's say five air nodes, and then you get the aggregated value, and then you push that, uh, not push, but it was already on-chain, and then you, you aggregate it, and then you store it as the final value for that beacon set. So that's basically how, um, like, all these three different products work. Uh, we're in the process of launching Beacon Sets pretty soon. Uh, so yeah, look forward to that. So is Beacon Sets just a way to get an average of data or so, yeah, you it's, explain? It, it, it's the median of the five values. So ideally like the median value. Okay, and that's just specific to, bright, to price data, correct? Correct. So you can only do beacon sets of things which are um, like have a range of values, right? You cannot uh, like if it's something definite, like say a word, you can't really do a beacon set of that. Right. Exactly. Well, and what happens if one of these air nodes submits a non-truthful set of data? And how do you even determine what is non-truthful, right? Because if you say... Bitcoin's price is twenty thousand seven hundred fifty, but an a but an air node submits twenty thousand seven hundred and sixty. It's not that big of a difference. It's probably close enough, depending on the use case. But how would you determine that it was someone's acting maliciously? So this is a good point, and this probably ties into the risk coverage thing, where like um, you cannot ideally say that this is the wrong value. It might be the value that's coming from the exchange or whatever the node is hosted on. Um, the DAP using this data feed can uh, make a claim that this value was wrong. And then we at API3 would then look in and check in that and see that if this value was truly wrong or misreported. And then the uh, DAP would claim coverage and uh, basically, they would get the coverage amount as um, as compensation for the wrong data being pushed. So uh, we do do our due diligence before choosing a data feed. Like we have internal uh, tests that uh, go through the API and see how like how much it deviates from the median in historical values. So before we choose a data provider, but uh, there might be instances where this does happen. And if it leads to uh, funds being lost lost for dApps, then, you know, there's always the coverage. So, yeah. Just, just to add to that as well, it's we think that in order to have a reliable risk coverage protocol, trusting just 
API 3 to always make these payouts could be seen as a potential vulnerability because API 3 might not want to pay out. So we also use a third-party arbitration service as kind of a layer of appeals above that. Because if, if it's pretty obvious that it's, it's API 3's fault and we'd have to pay out anyway, we can pay out. But if we say, no, we, we actually think this is the correct value, because um, as Charles said, there can be levels of subjectivity around this, then there's a third-party arbitration service uh, that we're working with Kleros to provide where they can appeal to Kleros and go through the Kleros procedures to um, basically to keep escalating this if they want to try and claim. And we, if they pass or if they win at Kleros, then that's paid out from the API3 staking pool anyway. Yeah, interesting, interesting. Yeah, I... I saw a lot of talk around those third-party arbitration DAOs or third-party arbitration protocols a couple, a few years ago, but it just never really felt like it took off. But this is, y'all have found a use case for this from, I guess, uh, just making sure these air nodes are providing or these APIs are are submitting truthful information, I guess. Uh, what kind of, did y'all, did y'all, explore any other third-party arbitration systems or how did how did that partnership come about so we've been speaking with Kleros for quite a long time um it seems a lot of the initial arbitration systems that came about especially the arrogant courts were just Kleros forks anyway um and the Kleros team were were pretty helpful in when we were initially looking at the design of all of this and we think that their crypto economic incentive structure around arbitration is is amazing. Um, well, I do. So I guess I can't speak for everyone. But I like the way they've structured everything. And they're by far and away the arbitration service that's had the most usage and hasn't seen any problems with it so far as well. Yeah, absolutely. And what about the cost to dApps or developers when they want to, I guess, pull data from API 3? Like, how does that compare uh, to other, I guess, competitors in the space like Chainlink or, or Teller? Yeah. So one of the other advantages in using first party oracles to construct a data feed is around the cost involved in creating a data feed. Third party oracles aren't charities. So if they're putting data on chain, they want to be paid for it. Like they need payment for their services. So you're in effect paying the data provider and a third-party node operator. And then you also have the gas to put the data on chain. With API3's data feed construction, the data provider gets paid and the data provider puts the data on chain. So you cut out a, a layer where people could be putting false data on chain as a third party. You make it more secure but you can also construct data feeds more cheaply because there are fewer parties to incentivize in all of this. So we think the cost of us providing data should be cheaper. Uh, obviously, we can't share any figures with everything about that with you right now on this call. Um, so there, are a, there is a service called um, QRNG that we launched, uh, and that is completely free to use, actually. So uh, just to demonstrate how efficient AirNode is, QRNG uh, is free to use. The only thing you pay for is the actual gas cost for the transactions themselves. And that does like that uh, isn't like asking for any tokens or anything like that. You, you just pay for the transaction gas cost. And 
you can use it yourself on Polygon. I think it costs like 0 0.00005 Matic or something like that. Um, so this is a way to like request very cheap uh, random numbers. And in essence, like any request response protocol, especially on a L2 chain like Matic, would be very cheap, um, almost insignificant amount. And uh, we have people on Polygon and other chains building perpetual protocols using RRP and our data feeds. Uh, I can't name them yet because they don't want to come out. But so they uh, essentially use RRP, uh, the request response protocol for opening and closing the perpetual positions, uh, which has its own advantages and disadvantages. One of them being you don't need a constant data feed. Uh, so I'm looking forward to like when that happens. Um, uh, and the other thing, the, the cost for running a data feed is, again, on an L2 chain, it's uh, for us, one person deviation threshold is pretty low, but the actual cost to the user, I think we haven't determined yet what we're gonna charge like the dApps. Um, it's still being worked on, so we can't share it. Uh, we have some figures in mind, but yeah. Uh, it's going to be pretty cheap. It's going to be more cheap than uh, most of what people expect. Uh, the only thing that would add to the, like the cost is the premium itself, which would um, cover the uh, coverage. So the premium uh, amount you can it's a very it would be a variable amount depending on the amount of coverage you want. So like if you want a very large coverage amount, you pay an extra premium. Are those the D APIs, the the service coverage? Um, well, it, I guess on that note, well, I, before we get into that, actually, I, I want to talk a little bit more about QRNG and, uh, could you also just define QRNG for our listeners and maybe like make a comparison to Chainlink's uh, VRN? Um, so yeah, QRNG stands for quantum random number generators. Um, they are basically, we partnered up with Australian national university and their quantum department. And uh, we asked if we could use your machine apparatus to like serve random numbers on chain. And they, at first they were confused, like what? <laughs> but at second they are like, okay, we see the use case. This soon sounds very cool. And uh, we partnered up with them and they set up an air node in their infrastructure, in their lab. And we basically use that to stream like random numbers on chain. Um, the reason why we made it completely free is because we believe like random numbers shouldn't cost so much on all of these chains. Um, so uh, basically it's a free utility service that anyone can use. And the comparison with VRF would not be fair because VRF to, to its credit, offers a degree of uh, assurance that the random number that's pushed is uh, like actually comes from a seed. So you can verify the random number. Um, in this case, uh, you can't really verify the random number, but we, you, uh, it's coming from uh, the quantum machine directly. And that has to like push uh, like a real random number. Um, the one way we are thinking of making this more secure um, is providing a service on top of QRNG called DQRNG, which is Decentralized Quantum Number Generators. And we are partnering up with a bunch of um, 
QRNG providers. One of them who we recently partnered up with was Quintessence, uh, which is a pretty big player in the random number space, in the quantum random number space. And the reason why DQRNG would be more secure is that if you have just one random number, um, you and if you make like I'm getting into a bit of math here, but if you just have one random number out of five, you just take the XR of that one random number with the five. Even if the rest of the four are compromised, you would still get back a random number. So uh, that's a very easy way to make this more secure uh, and also more cheaper for Sparty to land as well. And who was the individual that y'all worked with at that university? Because I think I interviewed him on Twitter Spaces. Yeah, I think it was Aaron. Uh, Me and Aaron gave that interview together. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, he was talking about quantum entanglement and all those other things. Yeah, we got a little off topic. I'm glad. Maybe we'll try to stay a little bit more on topic on this interview. Um, But yeah, and in that regard, going back to DAPIs and service coverage, can you get into a little more depth on what is service coverage and how does service coverage in relation to DAPIs change the incentives behind those operating um, Oracle networks in general? I guess the main thing is that it makes the people who are choosing the data that's supplied responsible for choosing the data well. Whereas you see the the other Oracle projects that I'm aware of don't do that. And where there have been um, errors and people have lost funds, there's no recourse for them. So there's no compensation that I'm aware of. Right. The, the, there's been cases, uh, especially on like Solana and stuff, where like Pit uh, reported misreported price when like things were crashing down and stuff. Um, so I guess that that's what Dave is getting at. It's like uh, with with Oracle services like these, you don't really um, if there's no risk coverage in place, there's no uh, guarantee that the organization or the DAO or whatever chose the right um, data provider for this service. Uh, And I think that's why having risk coverage is so important because without risk coverage, uh, an Oracle does not have any liability uh, to serve the right data, like in case it serves the wrong data. I guess the other question is why why can't you make data providers stake and have it slashed if they provide the wrong data, which is a good question. Um, The... Short answer is that they would say no, um, and it would be hard to get big names on board. The The other side to this is effectively, because they're providing data from a first-party point of view, they stake their real-world businesses on it. And these data providers aren't worth small amounts of money. I mean, a few years ago, CoinMarketCap was bought by Binance for $400 million. So, and that was a few years ago, um, before Oracles and before data provide, provision for blockchain was as big as it was now. So I think you'd see bigger valuations now and having a provable record of putting false data on chain would pretty significantly impact that. I think there's one more thing to add that that we didn't take into consideration is that for a lot of data, there's only a single source. So like if you consider things like uh, metal prices or stock prices or things, it might be the case that it's only coming from a single source and that the data actually originates from just one source and everyone else just uses that source. So if you have a data provider that's, let's say, uh, some big uh, stock index, 
uh, fun or whatever, and it's running the air node itself, um, you can't get any better source than that, right? Uh, everyone else is just calling their API within their own API to get the data. So um, in essence, the, the, the only way to make sure uh, an Oracle works is that the source uh, themselves host the data in case of these instances where there's only one source. Yeah, that makes sense as well. Um, and can can app developers request specific data feeds? Like, let's say if they want to get information from AccuWeather specifically, or if they want the Coinbase price for Bitcoin, can they request that specific data feed? Yeah, uh, it's pretty easy for app developers to like use uh, AirNode, uh, like just use the AirNode address and within their DAP or smart contract. And then they can make a request to any of the air nodes that that have been deployed. So uh, it's a pretty simple process. I actually walked through with uh, Steph from the Polygon DevRel team uh, a few days ago, and I explained to her like uh, I think that'll also go up on your YouTube page at some point. Uh, and it's just me walking through uh, explaining how you can deploy an air node and then call the API and how you can call any API like that and any air node. So it shouldn't be too hard for any DAP developer to just basically uh, start using air node right now. Um, and if they're interested in uh, learning more, they can head over to our docs. Our docs are pretty extensive for, da uh, for DAP developers. And also they can ask for support in the Discord chat uh, where like I am usually online most of the time. <laughs> So, uh, what what teams are using API three right now um, on Polygon? If you can think of any, I, I know that I know that your your data feeds are still on testnet right now. Um, but yeah, who, who's using it right now? And when do you think we're going to go to mainnet, or is that alpha that can't be leaked yet? Uh, it's sort of alpha <laughs> uh, can't be leaked. I think for uh, th there is. Two projects that I'm closely working with on Polygon, and I can't name them yet. Uh, that one of them is a up-and-coming lending platform. It's not uh, it's not live yet. I can give you that much. Uh, it's not live yet, and uh, I'm working closely with them for a very interesting use case that they will share pretty soon uh, because AirNode is so uh, versatile. Uh, the use case. Um, the second DAP is uh, the one I mentioned. Uh, that's you building the perpetual protocol, which I also can't name, unfortunately. Uh, There's a problem with uh, like having being in the building phase is that you can't really name all of these uh, DAPs that are going to be used because we don't have our data feeds out live yet. And if we had them out live, we could like get DAPs on board to use us, and then we could then I could tell you, oh, this DAP is using us, but they can't use us because we're not art live yet, right? So um, the other, I, I know, I think Dave knows that if there are QRNG dApps that use QRNG. The, I know that there's at least one on Polygon. I'm not sure of others because our monitoring was down um, and still is down. I think Aaron's looking into it for that. Mm, right. So because QRNG is a, is a decentralized free to use protocol, we don't, 
make people speak to us or do anything in order to integrate with it, which is great when it comes to having an open protocol that anyone can use, but bad when it comes to me giving you a list of names. Uh, unfortunately, Justin, so sorry about that. I know I've received like at least 10 or 20 requests on how to use QNG on the Discord chat. Uh, and I think a couple of them were Polygon, but I haven't really took the time to like learn who they are. Yeah, that is kind of the funny thing about building completely open source and permissionless protocols is that you have a lot of teams that are building and using your protocol and you might not even know that they are doing it unless you're just looking looking at some analytics, I guess. Uh, but what are some other like interesting use cases that you could project for API 3 and some kind of unique data feeds, like maybe something in the insurance or in the DeFi gaming space? What kind of thoughts y'all have on that? I think one of the best things about the request response protocol and having so many different data providers, we have 180 odd, probably more by now, different API providers who are running or going to run Airnode in order to be able to supply data to Web3. I think there's huge potential for parametric insurance in that because parametric insurance by its nature needs, like will benefit from having lots of different data types to crypto price data, because although it would be nice to insure against prices going down, that, that doesn't seem to be a use case. Um, so, but things in the real world, like insuring crops against drought, insuring houses against floods, these are all things that need data that would be very specific, very local, and you wouldn't have a constant stream of it being fed on chain. And you'd probably only need to query once at the time the policy finishes or if somebody wants to say, I want to make a claim. So, and that kind of product benefits hugely from having the data available to create it. So I think that's the case where you, you have to make the data available for people to create the products. So I think the request response style works very well for that. We have, um, there's a use case that kind of highlights request response that I think is on mainnet where people are using it. There's a adapt that's being built to, and it uses um, sanctions.com's API, I think, to query if your wallet has been sanctioned and you can mint a cell bound NFT if it hasn't been. So this would be a way that DeFi protocols that are looking to, to limit um, users to people that haven't been sanctioned could you do that in a way that's, well, I don't want to say more decentralized, in a way that's more Web3 than just blocking front ends. So, and whether or not that's a good idea and what I agree with necessarily is beside the point. It, it's, a, it's a different use case and something that's not crypto price data. So, okay, I think one more thing is like uh, ties into what you said, Dave, it's like the identity layer of DeFi, which will, given the current political climate, might come into play where we have DeFi being segregated into two. One is that is permission DeFi and the other that is non-permission DeFi. And for permission DeFi to work, uh, you need identity verification on-chain. And that would only be possible through first-party oracles is what I believe. And and so like what you can have is uh, someone like the bank uh, running an air node and people uh, basically, whenever they want to make a trade, they have to like you query their node uh, for permission before making any sort of trade, or like after they make the trade, the, they make a request to the bank that I've made this trade, and that that goes there. So I, I see a lot of use cases, um, or maybe you can query the bank and mint an NFT that allows you to participate in this pool. Uh, 
that wouldn't be possible uh, unless you have a first party oracle system right um because there there's been a lot of like rumors around uniswap and how they're in big trouble with the sec the fed whatever so <laughs> uh i i've talked to a bunch of folks regarding uh defi and what the future holds and i i see like even though a lot of them are bullish they do see this divide happening soon between permission defi and non permission defi and uh i think that's where oracles could play a big role yeah there are just so many untapped use cases for the oracle technology and the oracle protocols that are out there because it is still fairly new i mean i think you know the Oracle problem has been presented for, it's been there for a long time, but I think once DeFi really started ramping up is when people really started to pay attention to the potential use cases of Oracle technology. Um, but something else I want to touch on is just kind of some misconceptions related to API 3. Like what are some common misconceptions about API 3 and Oracles that you feel yourself constantly addressing with maybe developers or just educating new users to the API 3 protocol? I think the biggest one is that uh, to use any of our products, you don't need the API 3 token. Um, so I think a lot of people assume that to use a QRNG or the data fields or, or anything else, you need the token. Whereas that's not the case. The only thing you need uh, is for, especially for request response at the moment, is just gas, the gas of the chain you're working on. So for Polygon, that would be Matic. I feel like one of the other um, one of the other misconceptions that we see quite a lot is that off-chain data equals crypto price data, and that's it's the innate assumption among almost anyone when they start talking about oracles they just think crypto price data. And it's kind of understandable because if you look at the state of data feeds at the moment, most of them are crypto price data. The, there's a few Forex feeds, the odd TradFi asset, but people haven't really gone down the like the traditional asset and traditional market routes to any great degree. So I think even within the kind of the limited scope of DeFi, there's potential to make it a lot more interesting by adding more assets and more types of assets. All right, yeah. I definitely agree with that. I think a lot of people are fixated on crypto prices, whereas there could be many other use cases that the Oracle could enable. Um, but just on topic of like the first misconception, uh, when you do subscribe to a data feed, uh, the money that is used to uh, like you buy in USDC, right? Or uh, the native token, that's the only two we support at the moment. Uh, USDC or the native token. Um, for data feeds and uh, the data, the money is then used to buy back API three and then burn it. So that's how we sort of ensure that, like, um, that the token retains its value instead of just being a deflationary token, um, inflationary token through staking. Uh, so the buyback mechanism sort of offers a, a deflationary mechanism. Uh, which helps accure the value within the API 3 token. Uh, a lot of people don't know this about a, about API 3 as well, that there's this mechanism. Um, I think... I can't think of any other misconception people have. I think the name makes it pretty clear, API 3, what API 3 does. 
which is probably a good thing. Uh, like it brings APIs to Web3. Um, and I think that sort of, for for, crypt, for uh, the, the surprising thing is it's easier to explain to uh, non-Web3 users than it is for Web3 users. Because in Web3 mind, people think of Oracle, they think of crypto prices, right? Like as Dave said. But like if you talk to any Web2 people or Web2 providers, they usually understand what we, 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 what we are trying to do. Yeah, and I'm, I'm glad you touched on the name API3 because that is a question that I have started asking my guests is why did you, why is the protocol named the way that it is? But I also felt like API3 felt pretty self-explanatory. But I'm glad you touched on it anyway, Ashar. Um, so we are running up on time here, but before we go, I just want to kind of give you all the opportunity. You know, is there anything else that y'all want to talk about specifically or any topics that you want to touch on that we didn't get a chance to address? Mm, I don't think from my side. Nothing from me. I think I've covered everything I want to. All right. Well, I really appreciate y'all being on the show. And before we sign off, I think, uh, Oh, you got one. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. So I've been working on a bunch of like guides and demo projects. And if any of the developers are interested, they can hit me up and we can, uh, like Polygon, we can schedule something together and have like a workshop or demo session. Um, that's something that we are exploring more and more at API3 in creating these guides, general purpose guides, not even related to API3, uh, so that like the Web3 ecosystem as a whole expands. Because at, at the moment, what I see is there, there's like a surprising lack of guides and tutorials for Web3. Like I'm not talking about like the basic guides, I'm talking about like end-to-end -end guides. Like if you try and look and see like how to build uh, a Uniswap V2 DAP, right? You might, you, you, maybe you might find something about the contracts, but you will find nothing about uh, how to hook up the front end to the contracts and stuff like that. So I'm trying to bridge that gap so that uh, people can quickly join Web3 and start building really cool things because I think the biggest barrier to that at the moment is not the lack of money or things like that. It's just the lack of resources, as particularly in the tutorials and guides section. So if anyone wants to work with me on that, I'd be happy to like uh, collaborate. Yeah, developer talent and dev resources are an incredibly scarce asset in the blockchain space. So, um, but yeah, before we sign off, I just want to, give you all a chance to uh, let our audience know where can people go to find out more about the two of you and API three. You can follow me on Twitter, uh, Asher to Shahid. And I, I'm not usually posting stuff there, but I usually uh, do uh, post things when there, there are my guides are out or uh, API three has a significant update. Uh, you can also find me on discord uh, on the API three public discord. So uh, if you have any dev-related questions, you can ask me there. Uh, but yeah, I'll pass it on to Dave. I, I would suggest for people looking for general information about API 3, our website's quite a good place to go just to get links to most of the resources. That's just api3.org. Um, Discord's good for any kind of development resources. I'm in the Discord and in Telegram as well. So if you've got any questions about how your protocol can use data, any requests for certain data types, you're welcome to message me about it and I can try and sort you out with that. Um, otherwise, it's not even worth following my Twitter. I'm barely active, to be honest. So I, I would go with the chance for that. Um, but also the official API3 Twitter is a good resource.
Awesome. Thank you for that. Yeah. And this has been a really enlightening and intriguing conversation for me and for everyone who's listening and watching. Thank you for listening and watching uh, YouTube at Polygon TV, Apple, Spotify. Please like, subscribe, follow, hit the bell, all those fun notification things that you do for podcasts. And thanks again, Ashar and Dave, and we'll see y'all next time. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone.